Well, greetings, listeners in listener land. Welcome to St. Louis In Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, government, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. We originate from and connect the gateway city to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. Well, folks, I am always in awe about different kinds of things that I learn, and I love to share them. And we had several weeks ago mm-hmm. a gentleman on, Chauncey Spencer, whose father was a definitive assistance in promoting and getting off the ground, no pun intended, the Tuskegee Airmen. Mm. And he was one of the first black airmen out of Chicago. And his Chauncey's grandmother was actually a very well-known poet during the Harlem Renaissance. And I bought the book, and I read it about his dad. Okay. And in the back cover was this written statement from the, somebody who had owned the book previously mm-hmm. that said, okay, this is great, but there's a guy named Joseph Oklahoma from Oklahoma who during World War I killed a bunch of Germans, captured 173 Germans and 20 machine guns, and I should have brought the book with me. Right. And I was like, well, who is this guy? Never, never knew about him. Looked him up, which led me, you know how I go down these rabbit holes and yeah. rabbit trails. Exit ramps. Yeah. yeah, exit ramps. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> and it led me to our guest today, Dr. William C. Meadows, because many Americans know about something about the Navajo code talkers, and but little else is known about the military service of Native Americans who served in our armed forces. But the other thing that I didn't know is that code talking originated in World War I mm. among Native soldiers whose extraordinary service resulted at long last in citizenship for all Native Americans. And so he's going to talk about the myths, the misconceptions, and the matter of fact mm. of code talkers. And I'd like to welcome Dr. William C. Meadows, who's professor of Anthropology and Native American Studies at Missouri State University, right here in Springfield, Missouri. Welcome, Dr. Meadows. Good morning. Thank you for having me on the show. I enjoyed talking to you the other day and am just thrilled with the book. And I want to let people know that it's called The First Code Talkers, Native American Communicators in World War I. It's available through the University of Oklahoma Press. It's probably available on Amazon or any fine bookstore, et cetera, like that. It's extremely detailed. Do you have done your research? How long have you been working on this particular topic? Oh, this actually, I first became familiar with the subject in 1989, and I did an earlier project on the Comanche Code Talkers, which had a little introductory material in World War One. The Comanche Code Talkers were primarily in World War Two, but it's an often on-again project, so it wasn't like I did it straight through. But yeah, it's got a good 33 years or so of gradual getting there. You just, just touched the surface on that, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> labor of love. <laughs> so what got you interested in this? Well, I was doing my dissertation on, they're called Plains Indian Military Society. So they're basically like the veterans fraternities or organizations that Plains Indians had. They had these before white contact and settled and everything. So it's like their own versions of VFW's American Legions. And they focus on ceremonies honoring veterans around song and dance type ceremonies. 
I was working on those with a Comanche gentleman named Forrest Casnavoy, who lived in Indahoma, Oklahoma, down southwest of Lawton. He had been a headsman in one of these groups, and while I was interviewing him about that, actually, for my dissertation, we got off on the subject of what he did during World War II. And he was recruited with 16 others about a year before Pearl Harbor. And they were, once they got through their basic and their training and everything, they were given a charge of creating a voice-only code in Comanche that nobody else could tap. And uh, he encouraged me to do a project on them. There were still a few members of that group. Their commanding officer was still alive, their training officer, I should say. And that led me down the project that basically became my second book. And I did the research for that actually while I was doing the research and writing my dissertation at the same time. They were all mid-70s at that time. My grandfather was a World War II veteran. He passed at that same time. And it dawned on me that these guys are not going to be here uh, you know, that much longer. And the time was of the essence. So I just started doing the project actually while I was actually still doing my dissertation. Wow. You've written, what, three other books on similar uh, got- topics? I've got six books published, and let me think here just a second. Five of the six have some focus on Native American veterans, different topics and everything, but two of them are specifically on co-talking. Two of them are specifically on the military society ceremonials that continue today, and then one of them is on a, an Army officer who collected a lot of material at Fort Sill in the 1890s. So what are some of the reasons, Dr. Meadows, that this hasn't been discovered previously or really become known. I know your book deals specifically with understanding news reports, not only those that were on the radio, the newspaper at the time, those local and maybe state and national papers, also interviews that you've done. You've done an extreme amount of research, and I want to let people know the book is very thorough, and he is the expert on this. You know exactly what you're talking about, but what are some of the reasons this hasn't been discovered previously or known? Because I was shocked. I really didn't know this at all. Thank you for your kind words. I think, honestly, it's a lack of documentation is the main reason. This was not something that existed in, like, Army training or protocol uh, at the start of World War I. It's something that was simply experimented with and discovered in the field. And so there isn't a paper trail, per se, like of training manuals and protocol and all this. And so what we have is, after the war, it also was done very late in the war, just the last, very last handful of months. What you have basically surviving from the war accounts from some of the officers in the units. They're one of the big myths is that it was all secret and everything. There's no secrecy about this whatsoever. It was to find a tactic that Germans could basically... Overhear our communication, the code we formed because it was based on English, usually or numbers. So it was experimented, and we have the officers' accounts, and then we have some newspaper articles, uh, quite a burst of those in 1919. And so the information is extremely scattered. That that what I would say it's one of the hardest projects I've ever done because of how just scattered the information is. There is nowhere you can really go and get a lot on it in any one particular file and um and so it was it was also just seen as a 
uh, slick trick that some of the newspaper articles and officers account. They're proud of it, and it's kind of like, look what we did to the Germans, look what we pulled on them, etc. And then everybody, the war was over, everybody was happy to survive, those that did, and get back to the business of life, and it was just shuffled and forgotten. The Army did remember it, and it would be revived and expanded to a much greater extent in World War II. But it just didn't have that kind of documentation or focus that a lot of other things did. So I know people who are in the St. Louis region know the Osage tribe because this was pretty much Osage tribe territory. Mm -hmm. But what other tribes were involved in all of the code talking, but specifically in World War I, you focus on one particular tribe? There's seven groups I've been able to identify in World War One, and the most surviving information is on the Choctaw, who are in the Choctaw, there are Choctaw, Mississippi, there are also the majority in southeast Oklahoma. And so we have a much better rounded picture of their experiences in co-talking, simply because a lot of the officers left accounts, some of the families had surviving accounts that were collected, particularly around the 1980s, early 1980s. And there was a lot of newspaper coverage and everything. There were Cherokees from Oklahoma. We don't know how many, but we do, have, we do know one identified. And we have independent reports that there were Cherokees also used in Oklahoma. There are five Comanches that we know of from Oklahoma that were used in a division. We know the Eastern Band Cherokee in North Carolina were also used in a totally different division. There are several accounts of some Lakotas being used from probably the North-South Dakota area. However, those the units are never identified within the Northern Indigenous. So this, again, is something that is very hard to track because you're mostly talking about privates and corporals who are rounded up and said, can you do this, send these messages? And they said, sure, they're happy to use their language in any service they could provide. But these are not the kind of gentlemen, again, that get documented. Just your average entry-level soldier. You get reports about generals and colonels and other people who do things like that. So, again, it's just really off the radar. But there are seven, seven groups in World War One, and then there are around 30 some of the same ones, different soldiers from the same tribes, are used again in World War II. But about 30 groups used in World War II, as small as sometimes just two individuals from one group, and then some cases are more formally organized groups, that, as the largest being the Navajo, of course. And you have two, if I can elaborate a minute, you have two different scenarios here. In World War One, they were just using people to speak in their language. Just get this message across the best you can in your language. At the very end of World War One, the Choctaw, after they were used, were pulled back and relieved. And the next week, they took they used eight of them in the force force firm fight. There was then a order to take eighteen of them and three commission non commissioned officers and actually take a week and create words for things you had trouble conveying. Because some of the modern, new modern technology, of course, wasn't in the older traditional languages. Right. And so they, did, they actually did create code terms. Now, they finished this training on November 10th of 1918, so we all know what happened the next day. The armistice is signed. So they did use their language. They did create code terms. They did not get to use those code terms as the war ended. But again, they basically, they are the template 
uh, the Choctaws are the template for what would be expanded upon in World War II. So you have groups in World War II that just use their everyday common language, but then you had five or six groups that were actually recruited before the war, formed very large formal vocabulary lists of military subjects, and in that way it was an unknown language, but also with a lot of coded vocabulary within that foreign language. Now this question deals a little bit with Joseph Oklahombe, but Mm -hmm. it also involves why maybe some of the code talkers from World War I were not recognized. I'm just going to presume a little bit here. You have a lack of documentation, but you have people coming back and saying, yes, I did this. But then you have individuals like Alvin York who were immortalized as a hero from World War I and what he did, but Joseph Oklahombe did some very similar things. And we get into the sign of the times, very similar to like the black veterans who came back from World War I. They experience a lot of freedom when they were in France and a lot of acceptance come back to the States. And you deal with the Red Summer. You're dealing with a lot of other kinds of racist issues. Was that the same kind of situation that was done with the Native Americans, you believe? Overall, there is a lot like if you look at the actually the officer's accounts, and even the news accounts, there's a widespread uh, accolade of Indian search. It was very well praised and thought of and everything. But there really wasn't anybody that was singled out for, for really like individual praise. It was more just as a collective group. Now, in the military, that was one thing. Back in the state side, of course, yes, you pretty much returned to whatever your local area was. And yeah, there's no question there were discrimination, race, overt racism in some areas, and this would continue even after you know, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Another thing I think that, that led to this is, for example, now Oklahoma, and as the book explains, this is one of the biggest, it's a, I want to look at it as a clarification. It's not to take anything away from the man, but there's more to the story than what the popular image is, and here's the situation against it. So Oklahoma comes back with this citation in English, and it the citation makes it sound like he captured 171 guys, he killed about 79, he did all these things, and the wording in the citation makes it sound like he did it by himself. When we tracked it down and everything, and there's actually a gentleman did this prior to his death, it got the ball rolling. When he found the actual French citation, there were 24 men in this unit that, that achieved this. And Oklahoma has one of the most important parts in it. So there's 24 men at a place called St. Etienne who basically the line is advancing. They get overextended. They're covering ground faster than everybody to the right and left who gets stalled out. They find themselves in a situation where they've created a little salient there, and we either got to take this position and hold it, because if we try to retreat, we're going to get cut down. We don't have any support. There's 24 guys out here to cut off almost. And so Oklahoma is actually the scout in the group, which was another common thing. If you were native in the service, they assumed you had natural scouting abilities and super warrior complex and all those kind of things. He sees two Germans come up out of a hole, which is a, they call them dugout. They're large, sometimes two, three-story underground living quarters that when they start shelling you or at range, you just go down underground, you're comfortable. You have electricity, beds, and other things. So 
he waits. Those gentlemen watches him. They come out and set up a machine gun. When they finish the machine gun, he dro- he shoots them and drops them and takes the position. And then what he does is he basically has this company trapped in this underground thing. And anytime they try to come out of the hole, he just machine guns them. Well, the other 23 guys are with him, and they ha- they end up holding that position for almost four days until they're fully relieved and everything. The French citation is a collective citation for 24 men. When they make the individual citation for each man and translate it into English, essentially the pronouns are changed because you're not talking about a group. You're talking about an individual. So in English, when you read it, it sounds like he did this. And so he brought this citation back, and of course people went wild because it makes it sound like you did all this by yourself. And again, what he did was phenomenal, but it's actually a group action and everything. And so there's the family has come to realize and understand that, yeah, there was more involved to it. But the newspaper clippings were printed, and that story ran basically unquestioned for almost 80 years. Wow. Nobody, they just took it at face value, and nobody said, wait a minute, how can a guy... How can a guy take wounded people back and forth across no man's land, but yet still hold these 170-some guys prisoner? That, that's impossible. So it makes sense once we get the context. And then also the officer that wrote them up for that was killed just a couple weeks after that. And so he would have been a person to probably clarify and the officer who was actually there when it happened and part of it. And his voice was now silent because we lost him. Again, it's still phenomenal what he what he did and everything, but the clarification makes puts it into context. I appreciate that because that, that really you've done your homework on that. You have fleshed that out to not embarrass, but to get clarification, to get the truth about what happened. And we're going to take a break in a few moments here. And when we come back, what I'd like for you to talk about, Dr. Meadows, is the French awards that these men received, the American awards, the recognition that it's still waiting for some of these men from the military. And I know there was an ex- a change of metal types and metal names at the time. And I want to get into a couple other things that you mentioned that the Native American as scouts. I thought this was very fascinating in your book that stirred something in me to have this particular conversation with you. And then your role as you appeared before Congress to really help push recognition for the men involved in this. So is that okay? We'll go with that? It's fine. Okay, so folks, we're going to come back and do our next segment. You're listening to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston on the U.S. Radio Network. St. Louis Intune strives to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories and interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve people, places, and things. Our topics cover a wide range, such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and even sports. And that's just to name a few. While St. Louis In Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we connect to what is going on nationally as well. If you enjoy what you hear, please take time and like and share and subscribe to this show and listen to other previous shows 
that can be found on our website, stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. Or on your favorite podcast platform, that's stlintune.com. stlintune.com. And if you've got an idea that you'd like for us to examine a little deeper, let us know by dropping us a note at stlintune at gmail.com. That's stlintune at gmail.com. St. Louis in Tune, heard Monday through Friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the U.S. and, of course, right here in St. Louis. Our website, again, is stlintune.com. We want to hear from you, stlintune.com. Welcome back to St. Louis in Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston. We are having a great conversation with Dr. William C. Meadows. He is professor of anthropology and Native American studies at Missouri State University. We're talking about his book, which is called The First Code Talkers, Native American Communicators in World War I. He is the foremost expert on the subject and provides really some compelling evidence in the book and really details things out, folks, gives you a great understanding of this and actually is a springboard for additional kinds of investigation that maybe you want to try. So before the break, Dr. Meadows, we were talking about individuals. We were talking about some of the exploits of Joseph Oklahombi and Mm -hmm. the recognition that the French gave to not only Oklahoma, but several of the others in the unit there, they received numerous medals, and the United States also provided some things. Just discuss that a little bit, and what is still laying out there that needs to be done as far as recognition for these code talkers? We were technically serving under the French Army at that time, which means we can also be awarded French awards because we're under their direction. So Oklahoma did receive the Croix de Guerre, the French War Cross, and then he received from the U.S. what's called the Silver Citation Star. People recognize the word Silver Star immediately, but the Silver Star Award didn't, it wasn't created until 1932 with the red, white, blue ribbon in the middle and everything. And so what they had back then, they had a series of awards depending on whether the action was recorded at what level? Was it at the company level? Was it at the division level? Was it at the army level? You received different levels of awards. And so the silver citation pen, it's very small. It's literally just a little bitty star, like maybe three-eighths or so of an inch that could be attached to your, your medal. And he was awarded that. And and then later, that was when it was changed to the silver star. So he, is, he was... Uh, posthumously later awarded the modern silver star and then of course he had the honorable discharge <clears throat> pin etc and everything of that nature um he oftentimes in some of these pictures a lot of these gentlemen did not get all their medals and things a lot of times some of the medals weren't actually awarded until after the war ended and things he did have the french Croix de guerre he did have a honorable discharge pin and everything on his on his uniform Currently, there is an effort to, um, there have been a, a movement and letters of support and things to have him reconsidered for the Medal of Honor, the Congressional Medal of Honor. And so that's currently underway. There's no indication where that's at right now or if it will go through. But there have been some, some there's a, 
about 208 Americans, I believe, records who are being reviewed and considered for that. Um, now, the gentlemen all received, the 24 gentlemen in the unit all received the exact same award. I found copies of, well, I have the master award from the French, which lists them all by their name and serial number. But also I found evidence of some of the others receiving the exact same award Oklahoma did. Now, there wasn't any official U.S. recognition, and this is another, it segues with Oklahoma, but it's different. For a long time, he has been reported as being one of the code talkers. However, there were eight of them used. It's a very small group that was distributed. According to his officer, the one that, that, that picked them, used them, organized them, et cetera, I was able to locate his daughter, who was in her 90s, down in Arkansas, and I went down to see her in 2018. And the strangest thing is that about 30 minutes before I got to do the interview with her, it dawned on me that this was 100 years to the day and almost the hour that they first used the Choctaw. So wow. we both thought that was kind of neat. And But she had papers of her father that had original things that he had written. They're in no archive, et cetera. So she let me use all those papers, and that really added to the book. It clarified and answered a lot of things that were hinted at, but not clear. And he said in, in, in his letters, Oklahoma was, had nothing to do with the uh, code-talking part. He was in the adjacent regiment. He was Choctaw, of course, from the same area, and a prolific warrior because he did some other things in terms of capturing Germans and killing Germans in combat and things like that, but just wasn't involved in the code-talking part. Now, the only possibility I could find is that it's possible he may have been one of the 18 individuals called up for the training session, but his English was not very good. And so we'll probably never know for sure because there is no list of the 18 that was in that training class. But it's not very likely that he was in that and everything. But regardless of that, he has his own, he has his own uh, amazing record. Now, in 2000, the Navajo Code Talker Act was passed, which recognized the Navajo Code Talkers from World War II with medals of honor and everything. Now, this is not the same as the Congressional Medal of Honor in combat. This is a more of a Congressional Civilian Award and everything. Congressional Gold Medal is what I meant to say. And I was called after I did my Comanche book in 2002. I got a phone call from Senator Tom Daschle's office one day, asked me if I could come up and present any and all information on Native code talkers, both wars, at a Senate committee hearing. So I said, absolutely. So I went up there. And as I joke, I had my 15 minutes of C-SPAN, and it said Southwest Missouri State University at the bottom. So the university was very happy. We got our advertising. And as I joke, I used up my 15 minutes of fame. It was all downhill from there. <laughs> we had some fun with it while we did. But that legislation, there was myself, representatives from the Choctaw, the Comanches, the Ho-Chunk, Winnebago, Lakota, some other people. And uh, the issue was, of course, is, of course, the Navajo deserved that award. That, it's never been questioned, everything. Hmm. However, there's many other groups that did similar things, and many of them did it well before in World War One and Two. It got a grassroots, widespread kind of support kicked off. Four years later, we got legislation started and everything. And, I mean, there's a lot of people involved. My role was primarily in providing documentation and records and showing, yeah, we can prove these guys did this, straightforward. I had finished from all the tribes that were lobbying and doing things. But anyway, four years later, that legislation finally passed, the Code Talker Recognition Act of 2008. 
And I think it's public law, I think it's like 42110 or something like that. But what that did was brought equal recognition for all the other tribes, both the wars, who have now been recognized. There was a medal ceremony in 2013. And it is an open act. For example, I have three groups right now that I have evidence for that have not been recognized. And I'm trying to get someone up there to, let's get these guys done too. I've got the documentation, the military records, they need to be recognized as well. So that's kind of how that ties in if that answers your question. That's great. Yeah. (laughs) That's very thorough and really gives a nice overview for people to understand that this was something that was left out. And there are people like yourself and many others who are interested in making sure the recognition happens. And that's very, very important. Mm -hmm. If if I could interject just a minute, uh, there's two things I'd like to share with people about why this is important. Because some people might think this doesn't really involve me or so what. And and here's here's the real irony of it and everything. So first of all, why did this work? These languages, if we did a code based on French or English or Spanish or whatever, the Germans had great linguists, so did the Japanese. They're going to break that code eventually. So these are languages that were, they were unknown to Europe and Asia. These were like hidden languages. They weren't even known to most Americans can't, you know, they can't listen to a Native American language and tell you what it sounds like, or this one's that one, et cetera, identify it. So you had these unknown languages. They were largely unwritten. In other words, there were sometimes Bibles and hymnals and things for local consumption, but they weren't like in the national or world libraries where you could learn them or trace them. Um, Next, the syntax is different. The word, the grammar and the syntax, the structure of the sentences sometimes Mm. is very different than Indo-European languages. So that made it technically Mm. difficult, and you had nothing to compare it to. And then... When you start adding in special vocabulary that only those soldiers created and know, it becomes a code within a code, like a double-layer kind of code. And why it's so unique is that, and here's what most people don't realize, both World War I and II, these gentlemen went through government-run boarding schools, the majority, not every single one, but the majority. These were assimilation-oriented schools, so the government and the missionaries' outlook at that time was not multiculturalism. It was not embracing multiple languages and cultures. It was to stamp out the native culture and replace it with straightforward English. And so these kids went through these schools and were resilient enough to hang on to their languages. And some kids didn't. The really young ones that started school, a lot of them lost the ability to speak their languages. But these guys hung on to it. And so when they were in the military then, and this situation come up and they were asked to do this, they were like, sure, because they were fluent, they were bilingually fluent. And so that's what people don't understand is the very languages that the government was actually trying to eradicate from these gentlemen proved to be a very useful tactic later on in both world wars. That's an excellent point. I I was going to bring something up related to that, and it's the understanding of who these individuals were not only within our own country, but within Europe, because as you highlight in the book, what most Europeans knew about Native Americans were some Wild West show, and Mm -hmm. that they were some kind of scout, and I really was not aware that the Germans were actually very afraid of the Native American soldiers, just because of this understanding, this stereotype that they had in their psyche. But if you would go into about this 
I guess it's this whole kind of persona that white Americans in the military, they believed, oh, they're Native Americans. They can be scouts because they have this natural-born warrior instinct, and they can sleuth around, and they can come back, and then they do the whoop cry when they're going to attack. Can you discuss that a little bit, that while humiliating as that is— there, there still was, I think, for maybe some of the Native Americans, a pride of their ancestry. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's collectively called the Indian Scout Syndrome. And uh, a good buddy of mine, he's a Vietnam combat veteran, retired professor named Tom Holm from Arizona, University of Arizona. He is a Cherokee, Muscogee Indian from eastern Oklahoma. He come back from Vietnam and was involved in a government study of he, he and some other Vietnam vets of returning Native American veterans to see how they fared in their recovery, PTSD, things of this nature. And he wrote a really killer book coming out of this called uh, Brave Hearts, Wounded Souls, and a very good read from University of Texas Press. And what he found in there is that, yeah, there is this very long, going all the way back into colonial times and everything, and there was some practicality of it back there. But you read the early accounts, and yeah, a lot of the colonials, they do not know the North American landscape, geography, etc. These guys have lived on it, hunted on it, trapped on it. They literally do know that. In more modern times, that's not always. You have people in World War One that have been in urban settings for several generations now who happen to be native. And they don't necessarily have any wood skills or anything, but the perception is the Indian Scout Syndrome is that, yes, they have these innate or biologically in natural for any kind of martial activity. Greater, greater endurance, can see farther, sharper, can see better at night, and walk through the woods without making any sounds or anything of that nature. And in reality, and so the, the seriousness of that kind of perception, though, is that these guys oftentimes got then asked to be scouts, reconnaissance, point men, the probes, those kind of situations that put you in more dangerous positions where you're more frequently to make contact with an enemy and thus draw fire. And so that's one of the accounts of, if you look at the, in World War One, particularly the Native American wounded and killed ratios, percentage-wise are higher than the regular population, than the non-Indian population. And this, it, it has a serious side, these kind of beliefs. Now, feeding into this, there is a Native role as well. A lot of Natives come, you know, some cultures really, Native cultures really promote the veteran, uphold it. It's the most important social status kind of thing. There's other cultures that don't celebrate, like some of the Puebloan cultures. They don't really push or celebrate veterans, even though they have a lot of them. It's not in their, their kind of cultural values. And so there was some some Natives who... To continue on family traditions, their fathers maybe had been in, in the Civil War or World War One, and now they're in World War Two. They joined because they want to continue these family traditions, the status that it brings in the community. And so you, you find cases actually of Native Americans volunteering for these positions as well. And so it's hard to answer in hindsight how much of this is from the cultural tradition and you're going to step up and take the serious roles, and how much of it is to maybe... This is what the non-Indians around me expect. They expect me to do this, so therefore I better do it. And there's probably some admit kind of thing. But the um, the serious nature, and that still continues a lot of times even in the, it continued into Vietnam. I have dozens of interviews with 
Native Vietnam veteran, it's the same thing. They're usually the point man or the lead tank or chief, lead us off kind of thing. And there are cases of people volunteering for it. One guy told me he chose that because he knew he could do it better, and he felt that would protect the group better if he was in the point than if he was in, in the middle somewhere. But again, I think, and honestly, I think a lot of it comes to do with what is your upbringing, whether you're native, white, black, whatever. What is your upbringing before you went into service? And what I found is a lot of the guys that grew up in the rural areas, they have these kind of skills regardless of, of color or race or background kind of thing. And so myself, I grew up on a farm. We used to go out at night without flashlights for hours and you let your eyes adjust to it and then just go kind of thing. A lot of city people don't have those kind of skills. They've never fished or hunted. They've never tracked anything. So I think a lot of it has to do with the, your geography and your cultural upbringing because there's also non-Indian guys who are recruited for these positions who were like trappers, hunters, those type of roles prior to entering service. And there is a record of some of those even with non-Indians. So I think in reality, that's a little bit more realistic. But it's multi it's multifaceted. There's a lot of different angles there involved. And I remember a gentleman, Indian veteran in, in Vietnam, telling me that he said, my, my 140 pounds, if I stepped on a stick, it crunched real big. <laughs> <laughs> And so they have some humor with it naturally and everything, but it is a stereotype that's still there. There's still a certain amount of that expectation and things like that. And in time with education, it, it levels out. But the one thing I think is that officers, that's important to mention, officers mentioned this repeatedly through World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, is that they said per capita average, the non-Indian or the Indian soldiers just don't complain. You, you assign them something, you give them something to do, they don't try to get out, they don't complain, they just take it and do it. And uh, not a lot of venting about it back in the barracks later or something, but they simply, they're described as just excellent soldiers, not many problems with them and things like that. And so I think that's something that probably fed into it and also officers took note of that, but very complimentary of, I can give them the hardest task and they make light of it. And that's still common in my field work today. A lot of Native families I work with are, they're not in the economic higher level. Some are, some are not. But I know some people that are, it would shock non-Indians sometimes. But these people are pray every morning, humble, thankful, and make the best of everything that comes, even though they may have very sparse situations. So I think the frame of mind, there, there's a very positive outlook about that. And that carries with those soldiers as they go. And there's a lot of them, too, that they don't want to they don't want to disappoint their tribe, their community, their elders. I had one gentleman I just interviewed the other day, he's a native who has the Congressional Medal of Honor for combat. And he said one of the main reasons, the action, he said there was adrenaline, there was training kicking in. But he said, I did not want to disappoint my commanding general who was flying above us in a helicopter monitoring the fight and he had the chance to meet him before that so he knew him just a little bit but he wanted to perform well and not let his commanding officer down so Mm. again there's a lot of different reasons from person to person i greatly appreciate you taking time to reveal to us a different side of who these code talkers were back in world war one and really illuminate for listeners 
who want to investigate a little further. And folks, if you want to do that, the book is called The First Code Talkers, Native American Communicators in World War One" by Dr. William C. Meadows. It's available at most bookstores. I'm sure Amazon, it's from the University of Oklahoma Press. And Dr. Meadows, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us about this subject. It's something that I think has been missing and needs to be part of our history lessons to uh, in, incorporated in our schools. And hopefully people out there will spread the word and let others know that this book's out there and that you're still on on the trail for gathering other information and helping us determine our complete history. Yeah, I don't think people realize Natives serve in a higher percentage than any other population in the United States, but extremely patriotic to protect their lands and people, but also at the same time the United States. And they are very patriotic in that sense about serving and protecting. We've been having a conversation with Dr. William C. Meadows. Dr. Meadows, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Wow. <laughs> His citations in here are unbelievable. He has notes to each chapter. He has timeline of co-talkers uh-huh. and how that all came about. <clears throat> he has some messages that were sent in Choctaw. He has the some biographies of the code talkers, and he mentioned eight, and there are eight that he really distinguishes in there. And then some of the sub, what I would call subcode that they did. A regiment was called the tribe. Machine gun, gun was called little gun shoot fast. Uh-huh. Ammunition was called arrows. Oh, casualties, scalps. And this is one thing he brings up, <laughs> that the Germans were afraid. I guess. I was wondering that about that. That they were going to get scalped. Yeah. I because was... that's what they knew from this European kind of and Wild West shows that would right. go over. And it was, they were afraid that these guys were going to scalp them. I, I was thinking that same thing. I wonder if they realized years ago when they used to scalp, which to me is just. Whew. Gas was called bad air. Okay. <laughs> One grain of corn, 1st Battalion, 2nd Battalion, two grains of corn. Ah. Grenade was called a stone. What ingenious to use Native American oh my gosh. language. And that was because apparently at the time they had to use telephones because none of the other ways to communicate were Fancy working. Stuff, yeah. And they knew the Germans were listening. They, would, they yeah. gave false commands and then it would get bombed. Yeah. And so they were like, hey, you guys speak this just do this it was impromptu kinds of things back then so that's cool very fascinating it really is very fascinating we appreciate you listening to this episode of st louis in tune take time to look at the show notes on the website for everything that was mentioned on this episode st louis in tune is produced in cooperation with kwrh 92.9 fm and motif media group for st louis in tune i'm arnold stricker